We are building, we are building, we are building. What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Joe Daniels, host of the Build Community Through Love podcast, where we highlight the efforts and strategies used to empower and grow community through economic development, community development, and education. I'm so excited for today. We have the phenomenal Juanita Campbell Rasmus. We are celebrating with her on this very day as she releases her first book. Her book is called Learning to Be. Finding the center after the bottom falls out. So wherever you all purchase your books, whether it be Amazon or elsewhere, make sure you go purchase her book. We'll talk a lot about the book in our podcast episode on today. Um, and so you'll have a chance to understand what the book is about a lot more. But today is a special day as it is the release of her first book. So a little bit about Juanita Campbell Rasmus. She is a speaker, writer, spiritual director, and contemplative. She co-pastors the St. John's United Methodist Church in downtown Houston with her husband, Rudy. Started with nine members in 1992, thousands have joined the St. John's family, making it one of the most culturally diverse congregations in the country. Pastor Juanita has served as a member of the board of directors of Renovare and its ministry team founded by Richard Foster. Additionally, Juanita serves on the board of her alma mater, Houston Graduate School of Theology, and on advisory boards for Rice University's Religion and Public Life Program and MIND, M-I-N-D, Houston. Juanita co-founded Bread of Life, Inc., a nonprofit corporation with Rudy, her husband, in 1992, and began serving meals to the homeless in the sanctuary at St. John's. Juanita most recently teamed up with Tina Knowles, Lawson, and Beyonce to help 40,000 flood victims recover in the wake of Hurricane Harvey in Houston. In addition to addressing issues of health and disaster relief, Juanita launched the Timonos Community Development Corporation in 2006, which recently completed over $30 million in housing development projects for the previously homeless in downtown Houston. She also founded the Art Project Houston to empower the city's homeless to become hope-filled painters and artisans who craft their own livelihood and create lives filled with new possibilities. I'm so excited to have Pastor Juanita Campbell Rasmus on our show today for episode 16. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Welcome, welcome. I have with me Pastor Juanita Rasmus. Uh, she is just amazing from what i've been able to read up on her um she is my dad's best friend's wife which makes her my dad and my parents best friend as well and so yes, i yes. know they send they send mega blessings from the uh dc maryland area down to you and your husband pastor rudy and uh i look up to you guys so much i know this is our first time actually having a great interaction but um just the the you know, I call him Uncle Rudy. That's that's kind of how he's he's known in in the house, and so that makes you Auntie Juanita. So you know, yes. I'm happy that we family. This is this is a family exactly. talk. So this is so exciting. Yeah, um, so tell those listening just a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Juanita Rasmus, and I'm a pastor. I'm a spiritual director, and I'm a contemplative. Um, and if you're not familiar with contemplatives, that word basically just means I'm a person who really likes to um, invest a lot of time with God, knowing God and being known by God, um, and then trying to share with others what I'm learning. That is fantastic. We're going to dive right into this first segment. This first segment, I'm doing kind of my own uh, research through my conversation with people and the title of it is just a question. Do dreams have zip codes? Um, this was inspired to me. I was talking to a friend of mine who's from Little Rock and he told me about kind of his upbringing. It was completely different than mine. And mm -hmm. it's an interesting and fascinating thing when um, you have young men who are living to see 21, 22, 25, and that's their lifespan. And how do you, how do you even get to a space where you can dream if you don't even have the time to allow that dream to mature. So tell me about your upbringing and what were dreams like in the environment that you grew up in? Great question. 
Well, I grew up in Houston. I'm a native Houstonian. And I grew up in a community called Fifth Ward. And then within that broader community, a little neighborhood called Frenchtown. And Frenchtown was basically the Creoles and the Cajuns who left New Orleans and the Louisiana area and came down I-10 to Houston, Texas to settle a community. And that community became um, really an amazing neighborhood in so many ways. Um, as an example, on my block, my grandparents owned our side of the block, the neighbor across the street owned their side of the block. They built their own individual houses and then they built rental properties on those. So. Uh, there was a lot of entrepreneurship kind of um, uh, ingrained in, in the kids in our neighborhood, or at least for this certain number of blocks. You saw that over and over again. Uh, families who would buy a, a piece of land and not only build a house for themselves and their family, but would have rental houses and uh, would rent rooms and that kind of thing. Out of this same neighborhood, people like Mickey Leland, uh, Barbara Jordan and locally more probably more uh, well known as El Franco Lee came out of this neighborhood. So it's very much a neighborhood where you were expected to have a dream. You were expected to be a productive member of society. You were expected not only to do well for you, but to do well and reach back and help some other people do well too. So it was that kind of neighborhood. Then add on top of that, a father who was actively engaged in the civil rights movement um, with Curtis Graves and um, Mickey Leland and Barbara Jordan and others. And uh, he was involved in sales because he had his own insurance agency, which at the time was a very rare thing for black people to have their own insurance agency. And um, so I grew up with a stereo in our living room that had a speaker in my bedroom with my sister. And then my parents had a speaker in their bedroom and they were playing uh, LPs of motivational thinking, all right? Uh, even back in the 60s, I was born in 61. So I grew up listening to people like Earl Nightingale, uh, W. Clement Stone. These names may not mean much now, but they have spun off the likes of people like Les Brown and Lisa Nichols and uh, other motivational speakers of that caliber. So, whoo, yeah, it was almost like dangerous not to have a dream. Uh, in our neighborhood. And so in many ways, while it was certainly a gift to be raised in a community like that and in a home like the one I was raised in, at a point, uh, and I talk about this in my book, Learning to Be, I needed something else because my personality type was so driven mm -hmm. that having all of that became in some ways a kind of a weight, a kind of a burden. Um, and so when you talk about having space to nurture the dream, um, I had space and there was always a carrot dangling out in front of me. Uh, and in many ways, I think that was kind of my undoing at a point. That's interesting. And we're definitely going to get into that as we dive deeper into your book. You're an author. <laughs> Go ahead and pat that on the back. Yeah. That's, a, that's a big deal. <laughs> well, thank you. I will do that. Thank that you. It's taken 20 deal. years. <laughs> I know that. All right, we're going to dive into that. Um, but I will say this, uh, the having the expectation of dreaming, but having the expectation of building community um, has been your living example. Um, and so through your nonprofit, Better Life Inc., I, I got that right, correct? That's right. Yes, that's so, right. So you've been you you have worked in and I, I don't like labeling people. So I'll label their situation. You have okay. worked and served people who have been battling with homelessness. Absolutely. Uh, because these aren't homeless like these aren't homeless people. They're people battling the condition of homelessness. And so yes. when we talk about dreams and we finish up and wrap up this piece of dreams, what is it that is important to to provide them with so that even though they're going through homelessness right now, they're still put in a position um, where they're able to dream and think long-term. You know, I think uh, a person who doesn't have a key to a door to call their home uh, needs what everybody else needs. You need some safe spaces uh, because I think dreams get cultivated in a measure of safety. Um, if you're living in constant chaos and turmoil and trauma, 
it can be difficult to dream. Um, I, not impossible, understand, but, but it can be difficult. Um, I think when we think about um, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, as you begin to address each of those level of need, then a person can begin to use less and less of that fight or flight brain and more of that uh, creative brain to begin to, to dream and to begin to think about opportunities. And so one of the things that we've tried to do over the years was to provide not only uh, meals on a daily basis to those who found themselves dealing with homelessness, but also to provide 12-step meetings because 12-step meetings help to give us a framework for grounding our lives, no matter what the chaos or condition of our situation is. And so I think that the 12 steps is probably the one of the most contemporary means of experiencing a grounded life, uh, a life where even in the midst of chaos, perhaps of addiction, uh, many of the men and women that we've served over the years weren't only dealing with an addiction, but they were dealing with a mental health crisis as well. And so you've got so much going on that if you can begin to help a person tune in to the first step, which says that you recognize that there's a power greater than yourself that is able to sustain you and keep you. Um, and so when you begin to recognize that, then I think it helps to take a bit of the weight off of you about having to sustain and keep yourself. Um, if you're thinking that you're the only entity interested and concerned in your well-being, that's a heck of a burden to bear. And so we've tried to make St. John's and the Bread of Life um, places that were safe harbors for people to lay their physical burdens down as well as to lay their emotional burden down. Some of the things that I did was to create a program called the Art Project Houston. The Art Project gave the those who were experiencing homelessness and other kinds of conditions, an opportunity to have a creative space. We have a curriculum. Uh, we use a book called, um, all of a sudden the title of it went out of my head, The Artist's Way, yeah, by Julia Cameron. And so in it, it's a process of reclaiming your own autonomy, your own personal power. Now, you know, it's really funny because we say reclaiming it, and yet many of us live every day and never have claimed our personal power, our power to say yes, our power to say no, our power to choose healthy boundaries, our power to reimagine our identities of ourselves. And so when we move through the artist's way with individuals who are moving through uh, various kinds of struggles like we have over these past 28 years, I have found that people can connect to what really gives them life hmm. and in doing so begin to dream again and so it's been an amazing process and an incredible journey and uh, I often say that um, when, when we were physically serving meals um, to the community now we're providing groceries because we went from serving meals and social services to providing housing uh, because really a key is what keeps a person from the condition of homelessness, a key to a door that's theirs. Um, and so I have said often that healing in this kind of work doesn't come on just the recipient side of the serving line, but it comes on the side of the line where you're offering the service. And so if anybody has benefited from this work, I have. That is fantastic. So we're going to go ahead and put a quick a quick pin in that just so I can say this one piece and then we're going to unpin it. We're going to move into segment number two. This segment is called Take Me Into Your Classroom. I spent almost 20 some years in college, I mean, in school from kindergarten through PhD, straight through. And I've been in school for so long. So I'm always just, hey, teacher, go ahead and go ahead and go up to the chalkboard or the dry erase board. Now they got, you know, all the stuff that you can do without going touching the board. So exactly. Um, I, I want you to take me into your classroom and we're going right. to go into your book, Learning okay. to Be, which is out September 15th. You guys That's can pick right. up your book on Amazon. Now, I saw that. Or any major bookstore. Any, any major any bookstore. Yeah. That is fantastic. So you guys make sure you go out. Again, the title is Learning to Be. So I read something and it said that, and this is where we're going to unpin it. And we're going to unpin it now. And so we're going into this journey, this journey of, of, of living 
where uh, you come from a community of people building housing and building opportunities, building businesses, employing people, listening to motivational speakers. And so now you're at a point where you feel that is now on you to now give back. And so you're giving, you're giving, you're giving. And as you're giving, you're also taking on burden and taking on burden. Exactly. And so then exactly. what is known in your household as the crash, the crash right. happens. So talk to right. me a little bit about the crash. Well, sure. Uh, first of all, the crash was, was the term we called it. August the 27th, I got up that morning and prepared breakfast. My husband and I worked together as co-pastors at St. John's. And so uh, one of the things that I realized is that he and I both have workaholism in our DNA. Um, and so that was one of the contributing factors to the crash. Um, but one of the other things that happened that morning is that Rudy asked me after we had breakfast and breakfast was always a big deal at our house because it was probably the only meal we were going to share together as a family. And so my girls grew up with sparkling apple cider and champagne glasses and heart shaped strawberry, I mean, pancakes and stuff for breakfast <laughs> because we tried to make it special. Right. Yeah. Uh, because the rest of the day they were going to eat lunch at school, which I usually pack their lunches for school and then dinner who knows where or when that was going to be right uh you grew up in a pastor's home so you know probably a little bit about that yeah um, it's, it's, it's 10 or 11 o'clock before you get home and get settled exactly <laughs> you know so it could be crazy so that particular day Rudy said would you like me to take the girls to school and I said that'd be great and I always joke and stay because I said to him, so I can put my mascara on in the bathroom mirror instead of the rear view mirror of the car. And mm. so we both laughed and, he, and I hugged the kids, hugged him, and they all went out the door. So I go into the bathroom, Dr. Joe, to put on my makeup, and all of a sudden I just feel sick. Mm. Um, it, it, it's even now, it's hard to put words to what I felt, but I tell people it was almost like getting the flu. You know, how you can just have this feeling hit you, you know? And so I'm sitting there or standing there thinking, I feel horrible. Uh, I felt nauseated, I felt just, can't even explain it all. But I decided, okay, let me call the secretary of the church, tell I'm not feeling well, and then I'll come in a little later today, or that day at noon. So I call her, ask her, will she reschedule my appointments? And she does. I hang up the phone, and then I literally have like an outer body experience. I see myself hit the redial button, call her back and say, I'm not coming in today. I don't know if I'm ever coming back. Mm. I'm going to take a medical leave or a sabbatical or something. I hung up the phone. I got in the bed and I proceeded to have what my grandmother would have called a nervous breakdown. Now, for me, it looked like this. Sleeping 18 to 20 hours a day, not able to get out of bed. The feeling as though I was so drained and exhausted that even going to the bathroom was a challenge. I laid in bed and later uh, realized that I became dehydrated because I stopped drinking water so I wouldn't have to go to the bathroom. This was a period um, of my life that lasted for that particular season for a number of weeks, probably almost three or four months, maybe five. Wow. Um, after about two weeks of this, my husband said, baby, I think you need to see a doctor. So. I went to our family physician, had a complete checkout so they could rule out anything biological like diabetes, hyper or hypothyroidism, or other kinds of illnesses that can create the, the depressive symptoms. So that was all ruled out. And so it was recommended that I go and see a psychiatrist, which I did. Thank God it was an African-American female. Uh, and I say that because um, I, found her so relatable um, mm -hmm. that when I got to her and, and she invited me into her office, I just, you know, I was in a zombie state. Um, and she saw that, knew that. Uh, and so she began to help me to name what I had experienced. And so in the DSM-4 at the time, which is the uh, Diagnostic Statistic Manual for Mental Health Diagnosis, she diagnosed me with a major depressive episode. And so we called that day the crash. And for me, it became uh, many days of about a three-year journey of recovery. One of the things in the classroom part that I want to share with you about that crash that I've yeah. since learned is that many of us will experience some kind of disaster. 
Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's a dream that gets uh, diluted or deferred. Perhaps it's a, a health diagnosis of some kind or another. Maybe it's a critical uh, experience on the job that, that becomes a defining moment that literally takes the life out of you. Whatever that experience is, and some people would say a midlife crisis, the place where you realize that the life you have been living up until that moment, you can no longer live. And that's what happened for me with this major depressive episode. I realized that my narr narrative, now I didn't realize all this at the beginning. The reason I said that it's taken 20 years to write this book is because it has. There has had to be sufficient time away from the experience to reflect back on it, to gain new healing, but also new insight to see what tools showed up for me. In the process of this experience, um, I came to realize that I was a contemplative, um, that I'm a person who, um, that some people have called a healer, other people have said that I was a mystic. All of that to say, this was a significant change in the way that I would live my life and understand my role in the world and how I'm to serve others. Um, one of the things that I want to invite your audience to do is if they have a piece of paper to create a window, a four paned window. And this is a model in psychology that's called the Johari's window. And so in this window, in pane number one, I'd like you to write the word vocation. Vocation is the Latin word that means vocare. It doesn't necessarily, although it can, mean the job you hold. It may not. Really, the basis of vocare, of vocation, is how you are being called, summoned, to serve in the world. And so I want you to have this little box called vocation and write the word, word serve. How am I to serve in the world? Now, there are times when the way we serve in the world is very separate from the job we perform. So understand that. Second box, relationships. Write that word down. Third box, time and money freedom. Write that down. Because you were talking earlier about dreams and so I kinda wanna stay in that vein of dreaming and goals and how do we uh, begin to uh, imagine a life we're not even living yet, right? Mm -hmm. The fourth box is called health and well-being. So what I'd like to share is that one of the, the many things that I learned from the experience of the crash and on the top of this window that you just wrote with those four different panes, write this phrase. There you go. You got it. Yep. Uh, now across the very top, would you write this phrase? Mm -hmm. What do you love. What do you love? When it comes to vocation, I remember uh, not many months prior to COVID, how often I would hear people say, I want a vocation where I can work from anywhere. I want to be able to work from my laptop and, and uh, do what I need to do to generate revenue from place in the world. Mm -hmm. And so the reason I say, what do you love? That's the name of this frame for this window is when it comes to your vocation, what would you love? You see, if you don't know what you love, you will sell yourself for what they will pay you instead of recognizing what you love can get you paid. There's a difference. Mm. There's a difference. Yeah. So when you talk about vocation, I wanna invite your audience to begin to dream about what would you love? Begin to write down, you know, if and even those who are retired or uh, there are people who are on disability income and who, quote, can't work, I am here to say almost everybody can serve some kind of way. There's a way that we are being called to use our gifts, our graces, our talents, our, te our technical skills, our creative skills to serve the world. And so... When you think about your vocation, your vocation, how you would like to serve the world, ask yourself, what would I love as it relates to the way I serve the world? So as an example, I'm asking people not to think just about now, but to think out, dream out to 2023. 
Now you might say, why are you going to 2023? Well, because in the mind, the mind already has limitations set on you for the end of 2020. The mind is saying, well, there's COVID-19, there's a social justice uprising, you can't dream nothing now. All right, so the mind will often do that because we have a paradigm, we have a narrative in our head that we've been used to hearing. But if you take it to 2023, uh, that's new territory. The, there's no paradigm for that. The mind doesn't really have any chatter to offer you regarding 2023. So what would you love your vocation to look like in 2023? Then the second one was relationships. Many are seeking a life partner. Some are just wanting a, the partner that they have to work out for life. Uh, so it, however it relates to that partner piece, what would you love? If you've got a partner, what would make this relationship in 2023 more energized, more exciting, more life-giving, more romantic, more pleasurable, more ecstatic than it is in 2020? Think about that. What would you love? If you say, well, you know, that part of my life is taken care of, but really I want some relationships that are life-giving. For me, one of the things that I realized is that I, you know, when you're in work, of serving other people like we have been for the past 28 years. I'm used to almost every phone call being a request of how I can help somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. Now, it may be selfish, but this year I said, God, I'd really like some friendships and relationships that don't need anything from me. Your parents would know about that. Others who have been serving for a long time, we can get compassion fatigued. And so I wanted some friendships where there are some people who would call me and invite me to tea instead of me always calling and inviting people to mm -hmm. the tea and the beer. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I just mm -hmm. said that. I said, okay, as it relates to the relationship piece, I want some interesting, cre creative friends who are doing some things that I'm not even familiar with. And guess what? I said that, and in the beginning of this year, I met a person who was the president of the, I'm a United Methodist pastor, and so who's the president of Methodist Hospital Research Institute. And this person and his wife and Rudy and I went on a trip together to Italy and had an opportunity to be exposed to a conference on nanotechnology. I know nothing about nanotechnology. And so what I'm saying is when it relates to our relationships, think big. You need to be around people who are already dreamers mm. if you want to have a safe space to nurture your own dream. And so ask God to send some folks. Maybe you don't call God God. Maybe you say the universe or the divine presence or divine love or however you name that presence that's breathing in us when we're asleep. Ask that presence to help you in the vulgarity to do what you love. Ask that presence to help give you a vision for relationships that are nurturing and life-giving to you. Andrew Carnegie, uh, Henry David Thoreau, um, Gerald, not Gerald Ford, who, who was the Ford that created the Ford T-Mobile, uh, the Ford, uh, Ford cars, whatever that person's name is, I don't remember right now. There were about 10 of them who were in a cohort together. And so they were nurturing each other's awareness that there's a creative power that if tapped into can turn into riches and wealth. And when I say riches, don't get turned off if money, wealth is a thing that turns you off. But do know that money will not go where it's not welcome. All right. Mm -hmm. So that's why I use the phrase, what would you love when it comes to Time and money freedom, the third pane on the box. You see Andrew Carnegie, uh, Henry David Thoreau, and all this, these others that made up this 10 group uh, of, of folks got together once a week and shared with each other what they were dreaming about. And they created a space that allowed them to nurture one another's dreams without fears of competition or that somebody would steal their idea and outdo it. So you see, that takes a certain kind of relationship. But in the time and money freedom window, what we're looking at there is, wouldn't you like to be a, philo a philanthropist? I was trying to confuse philanthropist with philanthropic. So here, 
an opportunity to give to people who have helped you, organizations that have made a significant difference in your life. Um, that time and money freedom is a place where you dream about what would it be like to have enough money to help pay for um, tuition for four or five young people who are going to college or uh, you know whatever whatever it is that speaks to you in the time and money freedom box having the time to volunteer so let me give you an example this just really blew my mind uh, I was dreaming about what would it look like to have real time freedom real um, money freedom so for me I thought well it would be nice to not have to work 40 hours a week what if I could work 20 hours a week and still generate the same revenue so that became my goal. Then my daughter called me one day and we were just talking casually. She said, mama, do you know how much Vanna White makes a year? And I said, no, I don't. She said, do you know how long she works a year? I said, no, I don't. She said, Vanna White, y'all know Vanna White. She turns the letters on Wheel of Fortune. Mm -hmm. Works 80 days a year and she makes $3 million a year. 80 days, $3 million. And so I don't know about you. For some people, that might be a big turnoff. And they'd say, well, I'll never be able to let cancel, cancel. I don't think that way. You see, the universe is not biased. America might be, but the universe is not. And so the universe will grant you what you have the capacity to dream about and think about and to nurture with energy and enthusiasm. See, I can say, I want to be rich, or I can say, I am rich. I have the time and money freedom so that I can have time to develop skills and interests that are important to me. I have the time to be able to volunteer in the neighborhood school that's in my subdivision, where uh, the children's parents, many of them, uh, are busy working and unable to attend PTOs. I can be the grandmama to a classroom. I want to, I have the time. You can begin to say, I am, and then name what you want. I have, and name what you want, so that when it shows up, it doesn't freak you out. You know, say, wait a minute, I don't know what to do, you've been, you've been claiming it. So claim what you would love in the time and money freedom area. So when I found out that Vanna works 80 days and makes $3 million, I started thinking, okay, so maybe I don't need to make $3 million a year, but I'm not going to limit the universe if it wants to provide that, all right? But I know what I need right now. And so I can project out to 2023, what would it take for me to generate the same income I'm generating now with inflation, fixed for inflation, um, and yet only work 20 hours a week? And so I began to look at a formula. How many conferences and workshops would I need to do, because that's more of the work that I'm doing now, so that I could replace my salary from my church? That's my goal. I heard... Joel Osteen, who's the pastor at Lakewood in Houston, one of the absolute largest churches in America. I think they, before COVID-19, worshiped 30,000, 40,000 people every Sunday in the building, all right? Mm -hmm. Joel Osteen has not taken a salary from his church, um, I think, since he wrote his first book. I'm writing my first book, and I want to get to a place where I can donate this salary back to our faith community so that they can hire and intern and fellowship other young people who are interested in doing the kind of work that we've been doing in downtown Houston. Dream big. What would you love in the time and money space? One of the other things, I not only want to give back to the church in that way, I tithe there now, but I want to give my salary back. But I also want to help the institution that helped me with my theological studies, Houston Graduate School of Theology in Houston. I also want to create a chair in the name of a dear friend of mine who was the doctor of um, uh, psychology there at Houston Graduate who passed last year. I want to I want to endow a chair in her name. She was the only African American on uh, the campus who taught the psychology program. And so I want to see another African-American take that role, have that space, and know that their salary is guaranteed because of my philanthropic efforts. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying we've got to think bigger. When you think about 
um, social justice right now and what this means, this uprising can mean for our community, for America at large and for all the nations who are watching us struggle through this. I want to think big enough that my presence on the universe can make a difference in how we come to find a solution to living together, loving together, and learning how to be with one another. So I'm looking at that. The last one is health and well-being. You know, COVID-19 slapped us in the face of the reality that African-Americans and brown-skinned persons are most devastated by this virus. Yep. So we have got to begin to talk about and think about what does it mean for us to have health and well-being as a nation of black and brown people? And so one of the things that um, I've done is to look at Second Chronicles. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I'm sorry, Jeremiah, the 27, the, no, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. In that text, so many people know that scripture. It says, um, for I know the plans you have for me, declares the Lord, plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, plans to give you a hope in the future. Well, starting at verse five, God is speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, to the people of Israel who are in exile. If black and brown people aren't in exile in America, I don't know what we're in. And then COVID further puts us in exile, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens is God is saying to those people, in, in, in Babylon, the Israelites who have been taken from Jerusalem into Babylon in exile, we've been taken from pre-COVID into exile in COVID-19. God is saying to them, build houses, plant gardens, have wives, marry, have children, marry, your, have your sons to get married, have your daughters to get married. Why? Because God knew we would need a model for health and well-being plant gardens. What would happen if we began to take vacant lots? And it's happening to a degree, but we can do so much more. What if we began to take the eyesore properties in our neighborhood? What if we began, instead of cutting grass, we plant okra and corn and tomatoes and bell peppers, and we began to plant ginger and herbs and turmeric and spices? The things that kept us alive in Africa are the same things that can keep us alive in America. And if we plant them ourselves, we won't have to worry about the parsonicide, excuse me, pesticides that get sprayed on our food and then sent into our neighborhoods. We won't have to worry about all the stuff that, uh, the chemicals that get put in packaged foods to preserve them. We won't have to worry about that. So health and well-being, what would you love? What would you love in those four areas? And then pick the one area that right now resonates with you, that has a lot of energy around it. Mm -hmm. Because usually the one that has the most energy is the one that's calling you. It's, it's the place where there's deep longing. You see, visions have the capacity to pull us pull us into our future, pull us into the places where there is longing. And likewise, we even have to notice what we're noticing around discontent. What in us is discontent? How are we experiencing discontentment in, in any of those four windows that I've shared with you? Because if we'll pay attention, spirit talks through two things. Longing, that thing that seems to be pulling you, and discontent that thing that seems to be saying, I'm tired of this. I, I don't want to keep living like this. I'm, I, I can't do this anymore. I, I'm, I'm not going to take this anymore, okay? Those places of discontentment are places where we can find some creative solutions, but we have to look at them. Hmm. We have to invest a little brain power in thinking about them, and we have to invite uh, creative insights as to how we can move through them and past them. And sometimes we don't even have to go through them. Sometimes we can just go around them, recognize that there are ways of thinking that no longer serve us and be willing to leave them in the past. What That's would good. you love? That's good. If I had to put my little spin on it, which it doesn't need to, it don't need no spin, but if I had to, <laughs> oh, I would God, also, spin on it. I would also give it to like what you had said in an interview not too long ago. 
I would call this the permission activity or the permission experience. Because you're now giving yourself permission. If you write down in these four pains, right, you right. are pretty much saying, I'm writing down the power that I choose to have in That's my vocation. Right. I'm writing down the power I choose to have over the relationships I want to build. I'm writing down the power right. that I want to give myself for my time and money freedom. And I'm writing exactly. the power that I want to have. And, you know, in, in honor of Chadwick Bozeman, I, I'm, I'm going to give myself permission, permission to live in my superpower. In these Come on now. Yeah. I live yeah. in my superpower. Like you said, God or the universe is moving in me to be able to offer that power to the world. And that power exactly. is necessary because that power then allows you and puts you in a position where you can dream big dreams because, exactly. because you're not strapped by, by the other people uh, in, in your life who are constraining you to what they believe and exactly. on what on what they want you to have. And a lot of that is because exactly. they don't want you to exceed what they've been able to exceed. And so breaking you know, free of that is exactly. important. And let me say something about they don't want you to exceed, okay? Subconsciously, there's a little more going on than that. Sometimes people are just frightened by your success. Mm. You see, if, if in relationship we offer people a measure of comfort, then sometimes it's not that they really don't want us to succeed. They're scared that if we do succeed, the relationship will change. So whatever it is that they've been gaining from us, they'll no longer, they feel as though they no longer will have access to. That's a mindset of scarcity. Hmm. Interesting. That's a mindset of inadequacy. And so I'd like you to flip your page over and put another Jahari's window. Yeah. Because in the beginning of the book, Learning to Be, one of the things that happened for me is that during this experience, the spirit asked me, um, who are you? And I'm like, I'm a wife, I'm a mama, I'm a sister. You know, I went through my roles. But that didn't answer the question, who am I? But at the time, I didn't even have the capacity mentally and emotionally because of how I was experiencing this depression to be able to answer it intelligently. So I just said, hey, God, I don't know. Who, who am I? And so part of this, this window pane that I want you to write is in the first pane, write the me I see. In the second pain, write the me others see. In the third pain, write the me I don't want you to see. The me that's my shadow. The me that, the part of me that's uh, emotionally immature or the part of me that feels inadequate or feels to, that I'm operating in scarcity, the part of me that, that um, is me when I'm ugly crying, the part of me that's me when I am at my worst, at my lowest, when I despise myself, when I uh, find myself to be unacceptable, the critic part of me, all of that is in the me I don't want you to see. Now, the majority of us spend most of our life trying to be the me that I see, the me I'm telling myself I am, the me that other people are seeing. You know, for me, for a long time, people saw me as a rescue ranger. Carl Juanita, she'll fix it. She'll get you out of it. She'll help you find a solution. She'll, she'll break her back so that you can be all right, you know. But that was part of my old paradigm. The third part is the me that I didn't want anybody to see. And there were some parts of me that I, I was starting to realize about myself because of the crash. You see, the crash for me was the falling apart of everything I thought I was. Now that fourth pain, the me that only the creator sees. Most of us have invested most of our energy trying to make people around us comfortable with the me they see. But the reality is, if we are going to live our life on purpose, then we've got to begin to be intrigued and wonder about the me that God sees. There's something I'd like to introduce to your audience if they're not familiar with it called the Enneagram. 
E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. The Enneagram helps us to get a sense of our personality style. There's a, a website called Truity, T-R-U-I-T-Y.com. I talk about this in Learning to Be that will allow you to take the Enneagram personality profile and get a sense for who you are. And it, it, it takes into account how other people see you, but it gives you a really good, clear sense of, in essence, who you are, but also a more expansive look at yourself. And what I like about the Enneagram is that it helps us to see that in these nine profiles, each of us, at our best are here to represent an image of the creator. And so when we understand something about how I am here to represent God to the people around me, mm -hmm. and I begin to live into that. And so for me, as an example, I'm a one, it means I'm a rule follower. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm typically going to be very loyal to morality, whatever that means for me. Uh, I'm going to be loyal to rules. I'm going to follow the process. I'm probably not going to tell you there's a matter of fact, part, sometimes it means I will say, you know, there's an error in this process. And if we would do X, Y, Z, it would help us correct the error. I see those things naturally because I am here to reflect the perfection of God, the way it gets diverted in me or subverted or converted in me is when I become a perfectionist. Mm. And then if you have too much of that, that's what was, that's the was, problem. was causing the crash. And that was what was driving my crash. Got Perfectionism, it. needing other people's acceptance and approval, wanting other people to pat me on the back and to affirm me, not taking my own autonomy and recognizing when he, girl, you are created in the perfection of the universe. You don't need anybody to pat you on the back. Pat yourself on the back. You're all right. All right. And so all of that, I mentioned the Enneagram because for me, the Enneagram is one of those tools, along with some other spiritual practices I talk about in learning to be, that help us fine tune our understanding, our sense, that grounds us in who we are in the eyes of God in a very personal way. Yes, we're the children of creation and we're the children and sons and daughters of God. Yes, and, and I came to understand that I am the beloved. I never really experienced that prior to the crash. I told people that you're loved by God. God loves you. But I didn't take that into myself to receive that I am loved by God. There's nothing my God won't do on my behalf. There's nothing the universe can't bring my way if that's a desire of mine. And I'm willing to sit with that and cultivate and have a mindset that will be a nesting place for that notion. So I mentioned all of that to say that when we talk about dreaming big and when we talk about being present in our community, we have to talk about recognizing who we are so that we don't bring our masked self to serve. Mm. But we bring our most transparent, our most vulnerable, our most authentic self because the flow of the universe happens in authenticity. The flow of the universe happens in a space of gratitude. When I recognize who I am, I recognize the gifts that, and the graces that God has bestowed upon me, then I can say, oh, I am so grateful that I've been given these gifts and they're not just for me. These gifts are for my community. They're for the neighbor. They're for the persons near me, even those who can't handle my light. Mm. that's big well i want to thank you for being the teacher of my class in, in in your own classroom thank you for inviting me into your classroom this has been great all those listening will take so much from it so uh we're we're delighted and we're thankful we're gonna move on to segment number three this is this is fun just real quick uh questions here we have just a few of them and all right we'll see where we go so I heard that you love books. I do. So if you had to give either your most favorite or your top two or three genres of books, what would those be? 
um, books on spiritual formation that talk about the soul, um, the dark night of the soul, which is really what learning to be is about. It's my version of the dark night of the soul. Um, books that talk about and invite us to think about how um, neuropsychology is informing our ways of understanding, visioning, and dreaming. Um, that would be the second genre. The third genre would be some of the great writings of the early um, positive mental attitude folks. Uh, as an example, there's a book called The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace Waddles. Um, uh, the books and the writings by Earl Nightingale, because they were men who were before their time in terms of understanding what uh, Andrew Carnegie and Henry David Thoreau uh, and, and that group, what they were understanding about the seedbed of the mind. And so I think for me, books that deal with mind, body, and spirit. And then in some, some, some other genres, um, she's deceased, but J. California Cooper, the writings of Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, they invite us and engage us in a very creative way. And they still invite us to notice what we're noticing as they're telling their stories. To notice what we're noticing, they become a mirror of reflection for our own lives where we get to notice what we're noticing. I think uh, so often we, we live under facades or with facades of ourselves and the mask of ourselves because we're not noticing what we're noticing. We're not noticing the longing in our life and, and paying attention and living into it. We're not noticing the discontentment, naming it and, and, and defining and deciding how we're gonna either go around that discontentment, go through that discontentment, or tear down the walls of discontentment. Um, so those are the genres that give me life. That's what's up. That is awesome. All right. You went skydiving. Yeah! <laughs> why? 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 <laughs> Tell me about that experience. All right. Uh, in our last few minutes together, Mm -hmm. um, I have, um, as a child, I had loved to climb on top of things. And so my grandmother's porch had four concrete steps, and then there were these pillars on the side of the steps. And if we had been rich white people, we would have had lions on them pillars. We weren't rich white people, so no lions, just pillars, okay? <laughs> and so I would climb up the four steps, and then I would hold on to the column and land, you know, and throw, put my body on the pillars. And I would stand on those pillars and I would jump off of them onto the ground. Oh my God, the feeling was ecstasy. It was this pleasure like nothing I had ever known. And so somehow I got the notion as a child that I was gonna go skydiving. I, I don't even remember how I knew to name skydiving. I don't know if I saw something uh, on TV, but anyway. So I get married, and I, before I get married, I tell my husband, my fiance, I say, Rudy, I want to go skydiving. And he said, not as long as you're the mother of my children. And so I'm thinking <laughs> he's joking, right? He wasn't joking. And uh, so consequently, after the, the crash, as I began to recover, I often walk what's called a labyrinth. It looks like a maze, except a maze is a puzzle designed to trick. A labyrinth looks like a maze, but it takes you to the center. The idea is it's a meditative walk, and as you get into the center, you're able to experience the presence of God, the universe, divine love. And so in the middle of this labyrinth, after I took my kids to school one day, the spirit said, go skydiving. I was like, what? Oh my God, I can go skydiving, I get permission? And then I thought, okay, so who's gonna tell Rudy? <laughs> he ain't gonna be too cool with <laughs> So I go home. And Rudy comes out of the bedroom and he says, baby, good morning. He's bubbly and lovey, dovey. And he says, so how was your morning this morning? I said, it was great. The spirit sent me to go skydiving. That man became Frankenstein in one minute. What you mean? The spirit told you to go skydiving. Now, keep in mind, this is the same man that when I told him the spirit said for us to buy real estate, we bought real estate. So this man trusts what the spirit tells me, but not when it came to skydiving. 
Mondays are our day off. That was the longest Monday of my life. Having to hear him talk about, why would you say the Lord told you to go skydiving? Blah, blah. And I said to him, finally, at one point, Rudy, if you don't want me to go, that's fine. God said I could, and that might just be enough for me. Then later that evening, seemed like a very long Monday, he said, look, that's what you want to do, you do it. But don't do it while I'm in town. I said, thank you. No worries. He was leaving the next day. I called my sister and said, let's go skydiving. <laughs> and so that's exactly what we did. Skydiving. Jumping, at, first of all, there's four hours of training that you do before you um, are allowed to jump. And you jump with an instructor. When I jumped out of the plane, it was as though I could feel God holding me in God's hands and just gently, like a feather, being gently lowered to the ground. It was the most peaceful, the most serene, the most quiet. I mean, the quiet and the silence was so profound. It was like I was being marinated in silence. Mm. And so for me, it was one of the most divine experiences of my life. Well, when you put it like that, I want to go, but I'm scared of heights, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I might have to go. <laughs> All right. So in conclusion, the last piece, um, I love the quote by Benjamin Mays, Dr. Benjamin Mays. He says, uh, I have only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it. I love that quote. And so I want you to just um, take the next minute, minute and a half to just wrap us up with just uh, some words of encouragement, some words to inspire us to just keep on going and continue to learn to be. All right, here's the key. Number one, decide that you have a life worth living and you haven't even begun to live it yet. I don't care how much you've accomplished or not accomplished, your life has been formulated in the crucible that is now available to catapult you into your best self. Notice what you're noticing about your longing and how longing is calling you into your 2023. Notice what you notice about discontentment. See, I ignored what I was discontent about. I was discontent about the fact that it, people always wanted something from me and I didn't know how to replenish myself. And so I would just go home exhausted every day. I didn't realize that I was an introvert, not an extrovert. Notice what you're noticing so you can name it and change what you can. Do it all out of a spirit of gratitude, knowing that it's, it's the equivalent of making the adjustments on the stove. The, high, the heat is too high, you turn it down some. If it's not high enough, you turn it up some. Notice what you're noticing. Learning to be is a book that talks about what it means to have resilience in an ever-changing world, an ever-changing internal world. You can find out more about it by going to my website, Juanita Rasmus at JuanitaRasmus.com. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All the ways in which you can get in contact with Pastor Juanita will be in the show notes. We just thank you so much for being a part of our community today, Pastor Juanita, um, Auntie Juanita. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> thank you so nephew. much for having me. There Love you go. You. There you go. And hug your people and tell them I said hi. Hug your sister for me, all right? I sure will. And I heard that you are a grandmother. And uh, I am for the second time. There you go. We're expecting <gasps> our first. Thank you so much. So I can't wait to get down to Houston and just kind of have her be right. thrown into the community as well. So, That's uh, but That's again, it. thank you. Thank you so much. We love you. Everybody, That's make sure you go out and buy Learning to Be by Pastor Juanita Campbell Rasmus. It will be on Amazon and anywhere you can buy a book, September 15th. Anywhere. All right. Thank you. Thank you so Make much. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to another episode on the Build Community Through Love podcast. Subscribe on all platforms to stay up to date with new episodes. Also, stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Build Community Through Love. And visit our website at buildcommunitythroughlove.com. Let's keep working, y'all. And if someone asks, tell them we're building.